morning, everybody. I know how you're feeling today. You're expecting Tom Brady to play, but then they throw in Joe Flacco, they throw Tyrod Taylor or Zach Wilson. Uh, so I'm sorry, you'll have to put up with me today. So welcome, everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. If you are serving as our, a military veteran, I salute you today. And thank you for your service on this Memorial Day. These are really, really interesting times these days, and I wanted us to uh, just try to focus here this morning. Our passage this morning is found in Acts chapter 2. I've entitled this message, Embrace Vintage Pentecost Revival. Embrace Vintage Pentecost Revival. Uh, we're, found in, we're looking at Acts chapter 2 and verses 21 uh, 37 to 41. My wife Tammy is here with us today, uh, and we'll talk to you later on if you have any questions. We have a ministry also called True North Youth Ranch, where we use horses to work with, with teens and children. So uh, if you want some information, you can talk to my wife about that today. These, this message has been boiling in me for some time now, uh, especially as we look at the news and things that are going on in our world. Uh, I sat and watched the TV and wondered, God, what, what can happen to change the tide in our world today, in our nation? And this topic just kept coming into my heart regarding Pentecost revival. And so we're looking at Acts chapter 2. We're starting at verse 14 because I'll make a summary of the first 13 verses. And it says this. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet, by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jumping down now to verse 37, Peter preaches his sermon, talks about Jesus and his resurrection, and he talks about King David. He goes now in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. In his book, Seasons of Refreshing, 
Evangelism and Revivals in America, Keith J. Hardman defines revival this way. The words revival or awakening may be defined as a restoration of God's people under a period of indifference and decline. And there are two th main thrusts, he says, in this, in this definition. He says that there is a conversion or salvation of a number of unbelievers and the reestablishment of biblical truth so that the church is built up and empowered for the work of God in the lost and dying world. You would think that this book was written during the national pandemic's lockdown. No, it was written in the 1990s, and the definition is still viable for today. The definition spurs on the following questions for us to reflect on. How dark does our world need to get for us to realize that it's time for the local church and the church universal to shine blazingly bright for Jesus Christ? How oppressive does the domain of Satan need to be for us to realize that true freedom in Jesus Christ is in our grasp right now for the world and the body of Christ to experience? How dead do souls need to be for the church to realize that our world needs a vintage Pentecost awakening for today, right here and right now? We live in an era where numerous, numerous people in our world have been made to feel physically, emotionally, and spiritually hopeless and overcome. But who can blame them? The tsunami of COVID is still lurking with one million dead to its credit here in this nation. The war and terrorism on the people of Ukraine appears never-ending. On TV, we have seen the sufferings of millions of Ukrainians. American cities are overrun by crime with shoddy non-existent prosecution. Mass shootings continue in unsuspecting towns schools and neighborhoods, turning lives upside down and changing families forever. Many seek for solace, questioning to fulfill every desire and need via uh, all media venues, deepening an already hemorrhaging lack of human interaction. Our schools have lost their focus of teaching children and appearing committed to redefining human identity. Federal, state, and local governments on both sides of the aisle seek for power in deciding what social norms and laws will be the law of the land. In addition, many, even Christians, are looking to other religions to palliate their stress and to try to escape via mystical meditation and philosophy or the like because they rebel against the notion of there being only one way to God, and that is Jesus Christ. We are often left to wonder if God will answer prayer for revival or will he allow us enough rope to collective humanity to hang itself. Please forgive these seemingly hopeless scenarios, but we can all agree that a Holy Spirit-driven wind of change is needed in our society and in our nation and in our world. The Bible confirms that God still desires for millions to experience the limitless power of the Holy Spirit and his life-changing grace. And this is still the order of the day. His grace still extends today, but it's not going to be extending forever. There will be a time when God's grace will be over 
and the time of judgment will come. Or perhaps we are satisfied that our prayers for revival have become short-sighted, spent on ourselves solely or just simply out of gas, literally and figuratively. Lakeview, I want to encourage us today, and as I say this, I'm saying this to myself today as well. Let's embrace vintage Pentecost revival. It's a matter of life and breath, the breath of the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. Let's embrace vintage Pentecost revival. It's a matter of life and breath, the breath of the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. This past Thursday was Ascension Thursday, usually celebrated on a Thursday, marking 40 days after Easter when Jesus ascended into heaven. And today is Ascension Sunday is when they celebrate Ascension Thursday. We are not confused this morning. <laughs> However, next Sunday, and I had asked Pastor Brian before he left if it was okay to preach on this passage because I don't know if he was going to touch upon the subject next week. But next Sunday, June 5th, is Pentecost Sunday. And we all heard of the title in the event before. Pentecost meaning 50 days, the time when Israel would celebrate the exodus from Egypt. From Passover to Pentecost is seven weeks or 49 days. For the New Testament, we see that Jesus spent 40 days of post-resurrection appearances. And before his ascension, Jesus says in Luke 24, verses 49 and 53, and if you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11, he says, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Going down, he says that while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising, praising God. Mark's gospel states that the disciples preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, it says in Mark chapter 16, verse 20. Sources say that these 120 Christ followers mentioned in Acts Chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, may have spent time in a place called the Temple Mount Colonnade, a place connected to the temple that had more than three floors to it, waiting for the Holy Spirit. There were manifestations present at the arrival of God's Holy Spirit. And let me just summarize, because we, like I said, we then read verses 1 to 13. Realize that these manifestations were a surprise to everyone. Even the disciples, though obediently waiting, did not know the form in which the promised Holy Spirit would come. Peter is the main speaker, but I'm sure that there is some bewilderment as to the miraculously otherworldly entrance taken by the Holy Spirit. We read that passage when he says, uh, no, we're not drunk. Uh, this is the coming of the Spirit of God. That's not how he said it. He didn't say it in a, such a formal way. I'm sure he said, no way. I didn't know this was going to happen this way. These guys really are not drunk, but they are being filled with the Spirit of God. It's the promise being fulfilled. The text reads, suddenly from heaven, a sound like a mighty, violent, rushing wind, filling the whole house. Divided tongues as fire, it says in verse 19, resting on each one. And like I said in Acts chapter 115, uh, verse 15, about 120 present, plus to the 12 disciples included. 
But take note that prior to this manifestation, the Holy Spirit worked through, was with, was on the people of God. Now he would fill the believer. He would seal the believer, the believer and now he will dwell inside of the believer. Those gathered began to speak with other tongues, other dialects, as the Holy Spirit empowered, enabled them in verse 4. Imagine Mary, who's listed there among the 120, Jesus' earthly mother and his brothers experiencing this monumental coming of God's Holy Spirit. These gathered spoke an unlearned Holy Spirit-equipped language, a dialect, specifically for native-born people from those countries to hear the message clearly. If you were to count the nations, there are about 16 dialects that are listed. The hearing crowd was mixed, but who were God-fearing Jews from surrounding regions in the area. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. But there was no confusion as to the message spoken. God's idea of this kingdom was present. They spoke of the mighty works of God, it says. And Peter preached a whole sermon explaining why these manifestations were happening. By his sermon, we can get the feeling that Peter's whole sermon is not recorded, just the important parts of it. Peter was encouraging his audience to not overlook or miss the reason why the Holy Spirit was manifested in these ways. I'm praying that we will see the need today to embrace Pentecost revival today. Because it's a matter of life and breath, the fresh breath and wind of the Holy Spirit to blow through our nation, in our churches, in our schools, in our governments, and in our streets today. I truly believe that there are unchangeable certainties found in our passages of Acts and Joel that remind us, the church, the body of Christ, that God is not finished with revival and in making sure that the gospel is communicated to all nations, which leaves us the task today of how we're to embrace this vintage Pentecost revival. You guys ready? You're not sleeping on me this morning, right? That happens all the time with me, so I want to make sure that we're checking in on you, that you are not falling asleep. I think the first way to embrace this vintage Pentecost revival is by understanding that it was specifically unmistakable. We see this in verses 17 and 18. The passage that we didn't read today was the prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and following. The awaiting for the promise was over. Peter, quoting the prophet Joel, states that in these last days... And the question we have to ask in this part of the passage is, when did the counting of the last days begin? It is considered the period between Jesus' first and his second coming is considered the last days. We see that Jesus spoke of events that would happen in the last days in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and in Luke 21. The Apostle Paul also wrote as if he was living in the last days. If you were to read the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you will see this. But perhaps more poignantly, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit highlights the last days. The prophet Joel does not mention the phrase in the last days, but he mentions the day of the Lord in his prophecy. But he speaks of a future day when Israel will be redeemed from their troubles. 
The end times is demonstrated by miraculous signs during Jesus' ministry until the second coming of Christ. For many, that is a problem because many believe that the miracles at that time have ended and no longer continue to these days. But the Holy Spirit was to be poured out upon all fresh, flesh, as it says in the prophet Joel. This term poured out is not the first time this shows up in Scripture. The Greek word exeo means I will pour out. The emphasis is the source and the receiver. God is pouring out his Holy Spirit on his followers like the latter rain referenced in Joel chapter 2 verse 23. And it's not a little sprinkle. It's not a little spritz. It's a downpour of the movement and presence of his Holy Spirit. Some translations say that it will be poured out on all flesh. We can just say poured out on humanity, on people, people groups, families, and ancestry. In our prophetic passage of Joel, the date and time of the passage is still in question. However, Peter labels the fulfillment of his prophecy being accomplished on the day of Pentecost, accomplished in Peter's, in Peter's historical present. So what was prophesied in the past was now coming to fruition. Other passages describing an outpouring, for instance, are found in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 29, where he says, the Holy Spirit was poured out in the house of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 to 5, the presence of God fills the temple with supernatural manifestations of his, of his arrival. Excuse me. Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12, the water flows from the threshold of the temple, filling the temple, and the prophet measures it, filling up first ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, until a point where he had to swim in this water, the water bringing life wherever it went. Once the disciples and all present were filled in, by, and with the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel would rock the government's present. It was specifically unmistakable, the coming of the presence of God. You guys are still with me, right? Because we're looking at a second way to embrace this vintage Pentecost revival. And the second way to embrace this is that that caused an uproar reverberating through the kingdom's present that day. Now, I have to admit that we have to go symbolic here and metaphoric to fit this in the passage. Taking a symbolic and metaphoric look at this idea, it says that wonders in heaven and signs on the earth below in verse 19. Primarily, this outpouring would shake the political religious establishments of their day in verses 17 and 18. The first converts to Christianity were of different genders. They were sons and daughters, different generations, young men and old men, and different socioeconomic status. Even male and female servants in the Greek is called slaves would be filled with God's Holy Spirit. There were the rich, the poor, those who were slaves, and those in government positions that were directly changed by this outpouring and how we need that outpouring today to flow into the government and streets and schools of our nation. And it says here that they would dream dreams. This phrase is the first and only time it's mentioned in Acts and in the New Testament. 
And this dream means it's a vision of recurring over while one sleeps. They will see visions. This is a sense of sight while one is awake, a supernatural sight of vision. Today, in our very century, many Muslims in Christian hostile countries today are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because some are having visions of Jesus manifesting himself to them and telling them of his salvation. Prophesying talks about speaking forth the word and counsel of God and the Holy Spirit anointing and inspiration. These are the manifestations. And it was a manifestation of the power of God in its unique way. When the Holy Spirit arrived, there was a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of God had already been on the move through the ministry of Jesus Christ and his disciples, but now was on full display when the Holy Spirit came on the scene. It was the word of God coupled by the presence of God and manifested in the power of God. I would propose that it was reminiscent of the shaking of the Egyptian, and of the Egyptian kingdom and its polytheistic vestiges. Remember that they were celebrating Pentecost and just 50 days before they were doing Passover. And in the mind of every Jewish person there, uh, the exodus from Egypt was etched on the history of their minds and on the Jewish people. It's why these Jews were in Jerusalem. The 10 plagues sent by God were directed to Egyptian gods and the 10th plague of the killing of the firstborn attacked the worship of Pharaoh's son as a god. And it's interesting that Acts talks about the sun and the moon being affected. The Egyptians had a god, Ra, who was the sun god, and the moon god, Kuza. But that's just me picking into a, a stray of hall, right? Of course, present were the Roman and Jewish governments, including religious leaders. Roman governors were from a polytheistic or belief in many gods, an idolatrous background. Rome itself is loosely, was loosely, um, loosely had moral practices sprinkled in every aspect of society. The Rome governed over the mainly Jewish city of Jerusalem that for generations was governed by King Herod's family tree, raised on the law of Moses. Little did anyone know that the disciples were sitting on a spiritual keg of dynamite that was about to blow through all the social political layers that we just listed. I would also suggest that the coming of the Holy Spirit will threaten the kingdom of the heavenly places, the abode of demonic forces. Jesus demonstrated this in his ministry. The Greeks believed in a three-layered heaven, seeing it as the heavens or the heavenly places. The Hebrews saw it as a seven-layer storehouse of heaven. But the Greeks believed that where the, the first heaven was where the clouds and the birds were found. The second layer was where the stars and the planets were. And the third would be where God and, his, and the invisible hosts of heaven were, including the demonic forces. In the book of Job, Satan goes into God's presence and in this heaven part that we see. In addition... Jesus stated after his disciples returned from preaching and healing and casting out demons and teaching, he says in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall from like lightning from the heavens. 
Understanding that one can argue that we're not told when Jesus saw this occurring. He could have seen it happen during creation when Satan rebelled. Or while the disciples ministered in the authority of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of darkness was shaken. It is why Satan fights for his turf today. God is also recorded as saying that he would shake heaven and earth in Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. The writer of Hebrew records sort of the same message as he describes God's unshakable kingdom affecting all the other shakable kingdoms in Hebrews chapter 12. But I think, folks, that even more than these, the personal kingdoms enshrined in the lives of those God-fearing Jews were shaken and affected by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I appreciate what Dr. Charles H. Kraft Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also is a speaker and writer on spiritual warfare and deliverance ministry. He wrote of the following three areas of one's life that are challenged when confronted and encountered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in his article, Three Encounters in Christian Witness. Perhaps these were confronted when you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, as your leader, as your Lord, these areas probably remain arrested by the kingdom of darkness. And the first area is that their allegiances and loyalties were confronted by the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God wanted to rescue them from wrong relationships and bring them into the right relationship with Jesus Christ. Their truth was confronted by the Holy Spirit. There was a truth encounter that occurred. Why? To counter their ignorance or error, to bring them to correct understandings about Jesus Christ. And how interesting that today we live in a society that encourages us to speak our own truth. Their power systems were confronted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? to release people from satanic captivity and bring them into freedom in Jesus Christ. Kingdoms were shaken that day by the Spirit of God. And probably at the sound of my voice and those of you who are watching through Zoom and so on, you have been wrestling with these kingdoms in your life. You have been needing a, an allegiance encounter. You've been loyal to one person or to one thing and have been struggling to be allegiance and have loyalty to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're believing certain truths in your life that you've been having difficulty to accept the truth of the gospel of Christ. And perhaps maybe you are needing a power encounter where your life is bound by demonic forces and needing the liberation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Spirit of God came, there were kingdoms that were confronted that day. But lastly, you know when a minister says lastly, it's not really the last thing. <laughs> but I promise you we'll race to the lastly here. Let's embrace this vintage Pentecost revival that emphasized the countdown to judgment day. Now is when we take this Second half of the passage, literally. It didn't happen at that time as Peter's preaching. But there will be a cosmic dismantling of the whole solar system and that of the earth. This, as I said, has not yet fully been accomplished. Arrogant politicians and scientists have championed the notion that our world will come, that our world will come to an end because of climate change. I will stand here and say that I agree that we have not been good stewards of our planet. 
I'm trying my best to be a good recycler of bottles because I can use those bottles to get something else. That's my contribution to our society in this, in this area. But we have also behaved in ways that will ultimately be met with a God-sized reckoning. I respectfully compare 9-11 to a toppling of the classic Lincoln logs compared to what awaits our world at Jesus' second coming. Acts chapter 2 verse 18 reminds us of blood, fire, and billows of smoke. In the, in the prophecy of Joel, it talks about war. And these are the, the times when it talks about the blood of people rolling in the streets. But along with the cosmic dismantling of the solar system and of the earth, I believe that there will also be a cosmic dismantling of God's demonstration of grace. The people, it says, and responded in verses 37 to 41. It says that their hearts were cut, they were pierced, they were convicted, and they asked the instructions, what must we do? I find it interesting that in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that it says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it says, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance as the Lord has called. Interesting that on Jerusalem that day, the Mount Zion is the temple there, that salvation came for 3,000 people. They were given the way to new life in Jesus Christ in verses 38 to 39. And the promise of the Holy Spirit, it says, is for all far and near who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Church, we're called to embrace vintage Pentecost revival And what does embracing vintage Pentecost revival look like for us today? As the people responded, what must we do? I was saying myself that uh, months before this message came into fruition. As I watched TV, God, what must I do for you to use me to bring vintage Pentecost revival to our society? And I think I have a little list here to hopefully make it practical for us today. Number one. Be surrendered to God's rule and reign over our lives. Surrender to God's Holy Spirit who already indwells us. Place God in the rightful place of the throne of our lives and there is no time to play games of thrones. It's time to make room for the God sitting above all thrones and this entails getting rid of the idols we worship. If you don't know a definition of what an idol is, it's anything that takes the place of worship, energy, resources, money, time, talents that belong to God alone. And this includes harmful, debilitating relationships, habits, and strongholds, hindering the process God uses to mold us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Get rid of anything that keeps us from forming Christ in us. But don't think this will be easy. There will be a turf war The enemy of our souls will not go quietly into the night when we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, be current in our confessions. Confessions of our sins that may be living and breathing in our lives. Prayer is to be our oxygen. Praying, believing, and waiting for a personal vintage Pentecost revival. There are three R's. I want to tell you this sermon could have been two or three parts. So forgive me, I'm trying to stuck everything into like putting... Texas into Puerto Rico. 
The three R's, number one, is asking the Holy Spirit to help us remember unconfessed sin. To then renounce them, give up ownership over them of these sins. And ask the Holy Spirit to reclaim ground given over to the sins of the enemy of the cross. Be current in our confessions. Thirdly, be aware of who we are in Jesus Christ. Be comfortable with our identity in Jesus Christ. Dr. Neil Anderson has compiled a wonderful description based on biblical verses of who we are in Christ. Let me just give you a quick example. We are Christ's friend. John chapter 15, verse 15. We are joint heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance. Of Romans 8, 17. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 6. Do you believe this of this yourself today? Do you believe that these are yours, your characteristics, your identities today? And before is a little uh, brave. Be open to be used by God to be a threat to the domain of Satan. Be vessels of God's true love to combat the darkness of the vile hate spewed from all directions, persuasions, and political parties. Look beyond our present social, economic, or political, spiritual environments and see that our battle is not what we see with our natural eyes. We're living in times that are ripe for the harvest, a time for people to be transformed by the Lord God Most High, the awesome and great King over all the earth. It's a time of vintage Pentecost revival. And number five, and lastly, be prophetic. Not pathetic, prophetic. We are crucially needed to be proclaimers of the prophetic Forthtelling more than foretelling word of God and counsel of God in such a time as this. Imagine what would happen if every follower of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world would surrender their lives like this. We would have vintage Pentecost revival. And this is happening in Africa, in Latin America, the underground church in China, parts of Cuba, parts of Saudi Arabia parts of Sudan, the Spirit of God is moving powerfully and he's changing lives because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. And how is the world going to change? It's going to happen because of the church of Christ, the body of Christ, who is surrendered and submitted to the move of Christ so that his power can be throughout the nation and that there be life change. Folks, we can't put this power into anybody's life. We just point to the one who can. We point to the one who can change people's lives. And I want to encourage us today, let us embrace vintage Pentecost revival.